You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities, and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today, we are talking about business building and innovation in Asia. I am joined by two distinguished gentlemen. I am joined by Michael Graciles. Dr. Graciles is the president of True Digital Group, which is the innovation arm of CP Group in Thailand. He also happens to be a, uh, an alumni of McKinsey & Company. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me. I'm also joined by Dilip Mistry. Dilip is a partner in the Singapore office. He is a leader of our business building practice known as Leap by McKinsey. And as such, he focuses on rapidly building new digital businesses across the region. Welcome, gentlemen. Let me just warm us uh, up a little bit. We are now months into the COVID era. You know, Michael, what are some personal reflections from you over the last few months? Well, I think it's been a, an unusual period. I mean, I think all of our assumptions of businesses don't are no longer true. We've seen uh, massive disruptions in our lives, in business, and in society. I'm an optimist, so I always try to see the positive in things. And as we are working a lot on technology, we've seen just an acceleration of uh, many initiatives that we were already taking to, to bring our businesses digital. So the, there's been an opportunity in this crisis to uh, get on faster with what we're planning to do or to kind of re respond very fastly to situations we have never anticipated. And I also know that you have several children. And uh, how has that been over the last few months? Some of them several, are quite young children as well, right, Michael? Oh, yeah. You know, I happen to be the happy father of six kids. You know, I guess we've learned to do a lot of things virtual. I've been uh, in circumstances stuck in Bangkok for a few months. So I've played virtual games. I've discovered online gaming with my uh, my sons, as well as just a lot of Zoom and Skype family calls. Uh, but it's it's actually been uh, heartening that at least technology can also keep a family together in times like this. Excellent, thank you, Michael. Dilip, before we dig in, how have you fared during the last few months of COVID? Thanks, Oliver. Yeah, I think uh, the biggest reflection for me is, you know, some of the behaviors which uh, which one used to be engaged in, like like travel, have have you know what we get to reflect, engaging with clients remotely, engaging with colleagues remotely. You know, I think there's a new normal which is being established, and I'm kind of looking forward and excited about how we're going to behave going forward. You know, we don't need to constantly be on a plane 24 by seven. And uh, I think more and more of us are becoming comfortable with using, you know, online and video to kind of go about our business, both professionally and personally. So looking forward to the new normal. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Dilip. Listen, let's shift to the, the content in today's podcast. Uh, let me start with you, uh, Michael. Can you just, let's start off with, tell us a little bit about True Digital. What is it? What is your vision for True Digital? Well, the vision for True Digital is sort of, defined by our parents. Uh, our parent shareholder is the uh, Karun Pokhan Group, uh, also known as the CP Group. It's a 100-year-old conglomerate with roots in very old industries, uh, particularly in agriculture and farming. We are claimed to fame is we are the largest producer of shrimp in the world and the second largest producer of chicken. 
an expert. Uh, you know, as many other Asian conglomerates, we have uh, diversified quite a bit over those uh, hundred years, and we have now businesses in retail, in automotive, in transport. We are building the high-speed rail in Thailand, in healthcare, pharma. You know, some of our pharma business is also working on uh, cures for the COVID, and you know, then we have telecom, media, real estate, etc. So it's a very diversified conglomerate. And my chairman, who took over from his father a few years ago, uh, has you know has the ambition to use technology to transform that group into the 21st century and make sure that we we stay competitive and innovative. And so the mission and vision of True Digital is to be an enabler of digital transformation for that entire group. And so what we do within True Digital is we incubate new businesses as well as new technology solutions that could be relevant wherever in the group. And so I guess what is similar to McKinsey is that for me as an executive, it offers a wide diversity because one day I'll be working on smart farming solutions. The next day I'll be working on what we can do in digital healthcare and how we can create virtual clinics. So we are, in short, we are building technologies for 15 sectors in our group. To do that, I have an organization of technically competent people. We are about 1,200 people right now, of which 70% are really technical data scientists, software engineers working together. A hundred-year-old conglomerate, you know, shrimp, chicken, eggs, you know, 15 sectors. This does not sound like an easy challenge. Tell us a little bit about what are some of the learnings that you've had from trying to do this innovation, to do this business building. I think the, it is a challenge, you know, because you're working on one hand with a company that is huge, has its, you know, way of doing things and, and, you know, has also a lot of inertia due to the size. And then you try to marry that with a fast moving digital company that needs to help them. I guess a few of the learnings, um, I actually believe that there is power in interesting creative tension in having 100-year-old uh, business collaborate with a new organization that is only a few years old where you've got people that actually don't, you know, have never worked in industries. I've got software engineers that never have been on a farm. And suddenly we need to work on very advanced technologies to make, for example, contactless farming work. But it's actually, I think the lesson learned is that it's really in making that collaboration work, which, you know, I guess one way of putting it, it requires a translation. I believe the best innovation happens if, is if you marry subject matter expertise, which we have in our traditional businesses, with depth in technology. And you bring together people that are passionate about using technology to solve a particular use case, and you bring people that understand the use case inside out. And I think making that happen has required us to do a couple of things. It's really about making sure that we've got a good mapping of the use cases taking a product approach to developing the technologies and then also working on the people side. We've got our own academy. And so uh, we need to do a lot of skill building while we're building those technologies. So Dilip, you know, some reactions to what Michael just said around what are some of those challenges in building these new businesses? Absolutely. I mean, my, Michael talked about the ambition of, of conglomerates kind of embrace kind of digital and use technology to kind of, in many ways, reinvent themselves. And What's unique about conglomerates is they have all these different assets. And I mean, they know how to build new businesses. Uh, you know, they've been doing it for many, many years in all the sectors that, uh, that have been mentioned previously. But how do you do this in the digital world where, frankly, there are new challenges when it comes to uh, talent, when it comes to uh, go-to-market? And many conglomerates are focused on traditional 
transformation that is kind of reinventing their core businesses by reimagining processes. What's interesting about the approach that Michael talked about is how do you use digital business building specifically as a lever to kind of be a catalyst for the broader conglomerate transformation. This is something which I find interesting as an approach as opposed to just traditional digital transformation. And and say a little bit more about that. What is different in this approach? Yeah, maybe let me just build on what Dilip said. I think when we solve a problem, let me try to contrast the two approaches. When one of the people in our traditional business, let's say in our founding businesses, comes to us with a problem, we will not just kind of throw some resources and try to solve the problem. We will take it as an opportunity to build a new business. So, for example, in our shrimp farming, we built a software solution using AI to autom- I mean, to, to figure out what's the best way to optimize further the operations of a shrimp farm, whether it's in ventilation of the ponds in you know, adding chemicals or adding feed. And as we did that, we basically saw that that software solution, we, we approached it as an opportunity, almost like a startup. Like if we were to create a startup that builds software for shrimp farms, what would be the market opportunity for that? And what would the product need to be accepted, not just by our own farms, but by other farms in the world, which don't always have the same structure as their own farms? We approached it like that. We set it up as a startup. I put a 28-year-old guy in charge of the CEO. Uh, we, we gave him five people, you know, who really took a product approach to thinking through what we needed to build. And right now, it is being sold, not just to our own stream farms, but also to uh, companies outside of our group. Fascinating. I love that example. Thank you. And can we also zoom in a little bit on, as companies are trying to transform, what are some of the pitfalls that you see? One of the biggest pitfalls is sometimes taking a short-term view, although many, many companies would attest to taking a long-term view. It sometimes takes a while to get what is referred to as the product market fit to really deliver on the market expectations. And so, you know, the, one of the biggest mistakes is after, you know, four months or six months of trying to build a product, trying to get to revenue as quickly as possible. So that's one big pitfall. The, the second biggest pitfall I see is not paying enough attention to culture because it's all too easy for this new company to just absorb the culture of the, 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 the mothership, so to speak. And one of the things that makes a new digital business kind of unique is the distinctive culture to attract talent, to be innovative, to take experiments. So keeping a, a vigil on culture values that is going to be required to exceed is really, really important. That's the second kind of pitfall. And then the final one is just uh, sponsorship is, is absolutely critical. We need senior sponsorship to give you know this new digital business the runway to experiment, like I mentioned, uh, fail, and, and make sure that got the backing of the, the, the support from the from the senior most level so that they can continue to innovate and win in the marketplace. Thank you. Michael, any, any reactions to that? No, I think Dilip brought a lot of, what of a lot of good points. Uh, maybe uh, I'll, I'll just uh, double-click on one, which is uh, culture and, and the role of leaders. In our organization, we are probably right now dealing with somewhere between 80 and 100 use cases that are spread across our group. As a CEO, there is just no way that I can really add value to all of them. And so it's interesting because our group has historically had, because of also family uh, ownership, a very top-down leadership approach where people are waiting for their boss. And in my organization, I try, I mean, I see myself as a chief cheerleader, as the 
you know, what I do is to basically sponsor initiative taking, uh, coach as opposed to direct. And, uh, you know, what I spend time on is resource allocation. You know, which teams need more resources and what type of resources do they need? But, uh, you know, if I'm going to try to solve, you know, how we do uh, 3D modeling of chickens or, you know, virtual COVID clinics or smart retail applications, I mean, I will be very quickly get lost. And it's not just me, it's my entire senior management team, my hired people that I think we're open to such a mindset of, you know, seeing the organization, I mean, turning it upside down. I'll just share one concept. We call our organization a village. You know, it has something different, you know, and what we mean by a village, it's, it's not well organized. It's, you know, a little bit perhaps parochial, but where you have small, in a village, you have small groups. And like, you know, we've got an agriculture village and they're, you know, they've got 10 people. We've got a healthcare village and they've got 10 people. And we got a, you know, and we've got villages that are each working on a domain. And then within those villages, there are specific sub teams. And the idea is really, the idea behind the village concept is to empower teams and to let the teams figure out what use cases they believe are going to be most relevant to solve, that we can solve. We've also you know, learned over time that we cannot solve everything. And then as a leader, you focus more on figuring out which of these teams are actually doing well, which ones not, and of those that are not doing well, you know, what type of coaching do they need, what type of support do they need, what type of resources do they need. So that, in my view, is the role of a leader in a digital organization. It's very different from, let's say, a traditional corporate where you take a very KPI-focused approach and you, you kind of instruct people to down what they need to do. Just to add to the village concept, I mean, it's it's not just diversity of ideas, but, which I think is interesting, but having a village where you've got diversity of people. Village often, you often think about it as being a kind of a local, local theme, but one of the interesting things about a village, it can truly be global. And, you know, hiring uh, and, and getting the best talent from the world to be part of your village is, I think, is, a, is an important uh, attribute as well. Um, as a conglomerate, you know, there might be a temptation to keep things local and hire local. And uh, whilst I think a, a true global village, uh, you're able to access the best talent from around the world, which I think Michael can talk to as well. So let's double click on this, because I know that the topic of talent is something that many CEOs and senior executives struggle with. And Michael, villages do need people. And what you're trying to do, I assume, actually needs a level of expertise and skill set that is not common. So how do you go about... And I think you said initially that you have 1,200 people or so. So how do you go about finding the talent? I think, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that because actually I think I spend a lot of time on that. And I uh, actually probably is one of the things I'm most proud of is because we are a hundred-year-old conglomerate. And so that traditionally creates a certain perception in the market. And so I think three years ago, people were skeptical about what we were set out to do. Like, you know, it's a digital company there. And I believe in the last few years, we've really built a employer brand reputation, which has also been, you know, we've, we've, got, we've won some awards upon that. And I think it's been by particularly engaging candidates about our culture by being quite open about how we work. You know, we are very active on LinkedIn. We publish interviews with our employees. We are quite open about what we do. We host ourselves a lot of meetups where we share with other companies about, you know, insights we have on technology. And I think all of that, I think, has, has made people believe that our culture is very different. Diversity is a word that is used often these days. 
but it's been with us from the start. We our shareholder is an Asian conglomerate, but I've I've had the blessing of my share ma- and the management to hire the best in the world, which was needed to do what we had to do. So right now we have more than twenty nationalities working in our organization. The youngest person in my organization is twenty years old. The oldest sixty years old. We have pretty good gender diversity in the top three layers of, of uh, our organization, and and I believe that matters. I believe diversity matters if you want to bring innovation, if you want to bring a new culture, and then just relentlessly hammering. I, I make it a point to speak to every group of new joiners myself for half an hour about our culture. So every Monday, I will spend half an hour with about you know 10, 15 people that just have joined the company to explain them what our culture is about and talk about the things that matter. I believe this kind of efforts really are, are very important when you're building an organization that has a mandate like ours to uh, grow, I mean, to build businesses very fast, to sometimes fail fast as well, and accept that failure is part of learning and to you know be able to cope with diversity. And in the case of innovation, the very broad range of diversity and, and, and scope that we need to tackle. Over the last year, we've built a digital academy. And the reason we built that is that we felt that in our group, we have 350,000 employees. If we want to be a digital company, we need to upgrade the skills of a significant portion of our employees to be relevant in the digital age. And there is no way that we can solve that problem through recruiting. There's just not enough talent in the market. And you know that academy, it was in the first place meant for our own companies, uh, we've started to open it up to uh, you know some external companies that have heard about it. But now, actually, what we're seeing is that as we're going to a very rapid and unexpected reconfiguration of our economy, where there will be need for more automation, uh, you know, to you know avoid you know contact between people, and perhaps there will be less jobs in the service sector. We're seeing that the economy as a whole needs a reconfiguration and and needs more of those digital skills. So we are now working together with other institutions and the government to figure out how we can create an academy for the country where people that are currently unemployed, you know, due to the COVID, can actually use their time proactively and learn skills. And, you know, there's some fascinating stories. We've converted hairdressers into software engineers in our academy. And uh, I'm personally very excited about that. And I believe that is something that will need to happen in many more markets to deal also with the changes in workforce that are required to enable additional economy and also do something about the social impact that this crisis has had on unemployment in many markets. So say more about that. We're going to come back a little bit to talent. But I heard you saying also failing. And it sounds like failing is okay. How, you know, what percent of your projects or, you know, how many fail, Michael, and, and how do you think about failure? I think the key is to fail fast. I guess I, I would be, I'll be honest, I don't think we were initially good at it. Let me give you a specific example. You know, we're not talking a lot about the low-touch economy and about how from a public health perspective, low-touch or no-touch is important. Actually, in farming, this has been around for a while. The biggest source of, of diseases in farms is the contacts with humans. And so we've been working for a while on making our farms contactless, so avoiding that any human gets into the farm. And as part of that, we have to solve, so why does a farmer go into the farm? Well, to check on his animals. And so, for example, if you have a chicken farm, typical house would have a 10,000 chicken, 
you know, a farmer will spend a couple of hours a day checking on the chicken, checking on their weight, checking on whether any of I mean, whether there's any disease, checking on herd behavior. And so we set up, oh, we can automate that through uh, computer vision and AI. And actually, we turned out we've been, we managed to solve a couple of problems. We now, with a 3D camera, can take a 3D scan of a chicken and based on computational modeling, can estimate its weight. So they don't need to be weighted anymore by, you know, the farmer taking the chicken out, which is quite stressful for the chicken apparently. And so we've been able to solve that problem. We've not been able to solve early detection of diseases in, in the herd. And I think it's also, you, you gotta admit that sometimes you're not solving something and you gotta admit that early on. And I probably, I think right now, I think our teams are getting better at that and probably for 50% of the problems we're saying we can't solve it. That doesn't mean we can't solve it at all. Then, then typically what we do is we need to look at And that's another, I think, different approach for digital companies to be open to working with third parties that can help you solve those problems. Um, so we are, we've been working, we've been building an ecosystem of other startups, of other companies that can help us solve the problems that we can't solve internally. And so it's, it's also about knowing when actually it's better to not try to do it yourself, but you know, to look for someone else to have that has already solved that. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Let me bring us back to the talent topic. So we've heard about the importance of getting the right talent. We heard about the importance of building teams. Now, when you do have diverse talent, when you do have a mix globally best, you know how do you make that into a team that has a common purpose, a common goal, and is a well-performing team? Dilip, this is something that you know I know that you have spent quite a bit of time on in practice. Yeah, I mean, and it's also you know cross-functional team with very different skills. So it could be engineers, designers, product people, marketeers. How do you get them all to work together as one? And it does begin with with purpose. Uh, everyone needs to be aligned around what the common mission is. And ideally, they should all be involved in actually scoping that out from day one. Because frankly, to attract, to retain, and to keep this type of talent engaged, they need to believe and want to work on this mission. This type of talent has opportunities everywhere. So you get them involved in helping shape that vision, number one. Number two, you help them, you know, you work with them to kind of create this environment where they are constantly, and then the word here is used is shipped, shipping. They're constantly producing something to market. So, you know, sooner is better than later. And the most important thing related to the comments earlier on failure is, are they learning? So you create an environment where there's a shared mission. There's an environment where you're constantly producing something out to the market and testing it with customers. And thirdly, you create an environment where there's constant learning and the ability to unlearn where required and get external help when that's required. And if you can get those three things together, then you have a great environment where innovation becomes the norm. So I think let's, let me just build on what Dilip said. I think uh, how we are doing it, and, and, and there's some lessons learned on this, Oliver. First of all, I believe teams need to be small to be effective. Amazon has a, a metaphor they call the two pizza concept, which means the team needs to be fed by two pizzas and no more, which tells you how many team members you can have. And the reason why small teams work is that they can be focused. 
And if you make them too large, they tend to drift. Uh, and you know, you can align them on, on one problem statement. Also something that you know I borrowed from McKinsey, but we we use problem statements like what's the problem statement? What's this team gonna solve for the world? And then I think if you spend time with them on, on that problem statement and get them motivated around, okay, we're gonna make a difference in this industry and this is the specific problem we're gonna solve, you get them actually you're able to create a purpose for that team as opposed to they're, they're just part of an organization working on certain KPIs. Now they're gonna solve the problem for the world. And you empower them to solve that. Now with that empowerment. And also comes accountability. So, you know, we do check in every month and we have a, a demo day type of concept every three months where teams need to come show what, you know, do they have a product? And if they don't have a product that fits the market, we stop. And if they have a product that fits the market, then they get more resources. Not a lot, but a, a little, just to allow them to kind of scale to the next phase. And then the next three months, we get them a little bit more, et cetera. And so I think it's this kind of flying wheel that we need to get going. It took us a while. Again, some of our teams are doing very well. Some, you know, need, need some interventions. They have small teams focused on a, on a problem, empowered to solve that problem. And they get help from, you know, what the, you know, they get help from the system to get the right people in their team. And then you do wonders. And I think I've seen that, that magic also happen in our organization when we get problem statement clear. The team composition right, and we get management to understand that their role is to support. And one other thing that I have seen um, here, let me ask Michael this: is how do you get you know your teams, your business building teams, your teams of technology specialists, if you will, to be accepted by the business line? This is something that we see kind of. You know, there's a little bit of, you know, I'll call you when I have a problem, solve that problem for me. But otherwise, (laughs) how do you get accepted by the broader uh, company and the broader leadership? I think I've definitely seen also that organ rejection type of dynamic. And it's particularly funny when you see, when you put in, you know, you put in front of a 50-year-old executive that has worked for 20 years in an industry or more, a 30-year-old guy. Who says I'm going to solve your problem? But, you know that problem that you have not been able to solve in the last couple of years. Uh, those inter- early meetings are always interesting. I think it's about building a track record and bringing the right people to the table. So one thing that I've noticed, and we almost put as a condition now, is the person we put in charge of a team. He needs to have some relationship to the industry that he is going to work in. So let me again go to my example of the person that we put in charge of our smart farming business. Well, his family was in farming. So he had some, uh, he could empathize. And then it's also about making sure that at the senior level, we, we, we do extend the commitment and say like, this, there's a certain process, there's a methodology. We've done this before. Trust us. Dilip? Yeah, I think just to add to that, empathy is really critical, as, as Michael mentioned. But I think there's also a role in education. So you know, if you have been running a business for you know, 40, 50 years, it's sometimes difficult to anticipate you know, who's really going to kind of shake the tree, so to speak. A newer executive or a technology executive has a, has a responsibility, frankly, to show what's possible with the, with, with the new technology. And, you know, this could be by demoing the technology. It could be talking and identifying startups which are coming into that space and then get into um, an environment where you're 
co-creating, problem-solving together to basically get to solutions. So there are traditional kind of barriers that can get in the way, but I think it, as long as they both align on a common sense of purpose that we both want to take the business in a new light. And I think Michael also mentioned the word translator. You know, technologists need to kind of pick up the business language and traditional business people need to appreciate the role of technology going forward. And as long as you can create the environment where there's a sharing of ideas, then I think we can uh, we can get to a win-win. I understand. But implicit in all that you're saying is also that, listen, at the end of the day, you also need to be delivering results Correct. for and yes. with the yes. business. Absolutely. Right? That's where the credibility comes from, is actually delivering a new business, an improved business. You know, my, my organization is not a call center. We are we have a PL. And so we only get paid if, if we deliver the results. And so we have a commercial incentive to quote unquote please our customer by solving their problem. If you kind of structure this again as, as what Dilip said as a business building effort where the business, so the, you know the heads of my villages, they have a PL and their business you know needs to uh, at one point in time be profitable. That kind of entrepreneurial approach focus on building a business with products that customers are willing to pay for, you know, puts our people on the edge and makes, you know, makes them customer centric. So they listen to the other side and understand, okay, what do we need to do to solve your problem to create business value here? And I think that on the other side, what we have done in our group, and I have, uh, I have the benefit that I have two roles, uh, Oliver. So I'm also the chief vision officer for the entire group. We have put top-down pressure on our traditional companies to make sure that they are doing digital transformation at a certain pace. So we are measuring how many initiatives they are taking on digital transformation. We are asking them to report showcase initiatives on a quarterly basis. We are monitoring the adoption of advanced technologies like blockchain, AI, and Internet of Things into our different companies. So they have a top-down pressure from that end. You know, if suddenly... For example, again, our agriculture business, they need to do something with blockchain. They have no capability, so they come to us to say, help us with blockchain. Uh, help us figure out how we implement traceability with a blockchain-based uh, approach. Got it. Listen, guys, I'm going to change topic a little bit. Start with a little bit of a, a global view. And we know that we live in times where many things are changing. Pace is picking up. If you look at you know innovation and business building, what are the sectors that you see that are going to be provide more opportunity for that kind of innovation? I think we're already seeing traditional kind of service industries like um, media and retail. They've definitely gone online and there's many, many new businesses in that space. But I think what's, what's, what's really interesting, especially in light of the recent uh, pandemic, is, you know, uh, industries like healthcare have also been, uh, been kind of shaken up. Obviously, because of the restrictions and the lockdown, you know, people had to kind of avail those services in new ways. And I think this has really been a catalyst for, you know, industries like healthcare. There's a number of, you know, innovations which we've seen where, you know, uh, companies like uh, Practo, for example, which is a medical consultancy, they've, they've come about in helping uh, their patients and, you know, get access to kind of services. You've seen traditional kind of marketplaces uh, like the, the driver sharing uh, companies reimagine what they're doing to kind of deliver medicine as well. So I think healthcare is an area which I think is definitely being disrupted and will continue to be disrupted. And, and then, then the most obvious one, which is kind of new, is education. I mean, why can't a student get the best possible education regardless of where the teacher is around the world? 
And it's really the pandemic which has really forced us to kind of, you know, relook at the way in which we deliver education. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation in that space, uh, not just in Asia, but, but the world over. Michael, you mentioned, I think, 15 sectors you said earlier. What are the hot sectors in your view? I mean, we have a forum every quarter where the 500 most senior executives of our group come together. It's happened over Zoom <laughs> since, since months, but uh, we continue to have that. And, you know, it's fascinating, Oliver. None of our sectors is, is immune. You know, our retail has been hit probably in the most dramatic way. I mean, our shops have had to close down one, you know, very short notice. And, and so that puts imperatives on e-commerce to not just grow, grow double digit. No, our, you know, our ambitions in e-commerce for some of our retail businesses is to grow by 10x in one quarter. We've had to solve how we kind of suddenly scale our delivery fleet with a factor of 10 in just a matter of months. So retail, uh, for sure, has had an immediate hit. In healthcare, we've had to set up 34 virtual COVID clinics in, in Thailand in a matter of months. And I think tele, as I, I agree with, with Dilip, tele, uh, we always spoke about teleconsultation, teleprescription, but now there is no alternative. We have to do it. And I believe what you see is actually the governments are actually being quite are willing to collaborate with the industry on regulations to make that happen faster. And that on its own is going to foster innovation. You know, even in our agriculture, you know, we've had concerns uh, in, many, I mean, in many of our markets. We are a key player in the, in the food chain. So we've had many discussions with government on how we can ensure that there will not be food shortages with the pandemic. And so we've had to invest in, you know, in our supply chains to ensure visibility. We've had to invest for, uh, more rapidly in automation to make sure that uh, we could continue to operate key parts of our supply chain with less people due to the social distancing guidelines. We have a big real estate unit, as, as many conglomerates. We've had to figure out how we do virtual showrooms. We have an automotive division, which, you know, on one hand, there has been actually more demand because people, you know, don't want to take public transport. So, and on the other hand, you know, people can't go. And um, if you look across the world, do you see any differences, differences Asia versus other parts, differences within Asia? Let me speak first about the differences Asia versus you know, the West. And I think what, I've been, what I find fascinating about Asia is that we've had, a, I believe, in many markets, a quite, a quite mature dialogue between different stakeholders between companies in the same industry industry and government about how to deal with some of the disruptions. And I believe that's been helpful for innovation. I believe that has happened in some Western countries, but not all. So I'm personally hopeful that there will be coming out a lot of interesting innovations. You know, and, and I believe Asia also needs it more. If you talk about, for example, healthcare across Asia in many emerging markets, there is not enough infrastructure. So unless we solve teleconsultation, Telediagnostics, we can't possibly, I mean, solve the healthcare infrastructural challenges that we have. The same is true with education. This might actually, you know, online education has often been seen as a as a solution to solve some of the you know infrastructure challenges in, in education in this part of the world. And we might be an innovator in that area. So I'm again, I'm I'm an optimist, uh, Oliver. So I believe that you know part of the good part of this crisis is that. It has put stakeholders around the table in sectors which traditionally have been constrained by regulation. It's facilitated a very constructive and collaborative debate about how to make some of these innovations happen in a shorter period of time. 
And I believe that might over time even lead to Asia bringing innovations for the rest of the world. Dilip, go for it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to concur in the sense that I have no doubt Asia is where innovation will continue to accelerate. I mean, it's almost like the perfect storm. You've got a large uh, pool of young, very talented uh, population. And, you know, you can see, you know, if, if you look at the number of even patents, for example, that are being registered, you know, I think two thirds of all the global patents, for example, are being registered in Asia with, you know, China, India, Korea, Singapore, those kind of countries showing leadership in that space. So you've got this talented pool, which is emerging out of Asia, number one. Secondly, you know, Capital inflows into Asia are, are at an unprecedented high. I think something like, I think 41% of the invested capital in kind of startups around the globe is now in Asia. And, and that's a 10% increase from, from a decade ago. So the, the, the inflows are coming in, in terms of capital. And then the third and probably probably the most interesting dynamic is this is where the market is. You know, you've got a growing middle class market and these consumers as well as businesses have needs. And so, you know, you've got innovators, you know, with the talent, you've got money flowing in, and you've got customers as well. You know, from, from my experience, this is the perfect recipe. It's, it's a very fertile ground for innovation to take place. And with COVID, we saw a number of innovations from, from countries like, like Korea and, and, and in Singapore, for example, the tracing app, where those innovations actually started in this part of the world first. So I'm really excited about Asia being the hub of kind of innovation going forward. Excellent. Listen, Michael and Dilip, we've had a, a great conversation. I have learned many things. I'm not going to try to summarize all, but we have heard about business problems as a, the start of a business building opportunity. We've heard about the role of leaders as cheerleaders. We've heard about accepting significant number of fails so long as they fail fast. We've heard about the importance of small, two pizza-sized teams empowered teams, and many other things. So this has been a fascinating discussion around the importance of innovation and how to build businesses. I would love just to round us out by asking each of you, if you put yourselves in the shoes of the senior executives that are listening to the podcast, what is the one or two pieces of advice, suggestions that you would have for them? Let's start with Dilip. Sure. I think that the, the one piece of advice I'd give is, look, we all know change is the only constant in business and, and with technology and with digital, it's just accelerated. Business building, I think, is just the fundamental capability that's required to make uh, any business more resilient. Markets are going to change, environments are going to change, but if you've got this fundamental business building capability, you'll be able to take your organization in many different directions. So my, my one piece of advice is don't just transform your organization, but build new businesses. Michael. Yeah, so I've uh, not lost the habit of giving uh, always advices in three, <laughs> in three points, but I'll keep them short. My first one is I spend a lot of time on thinking and, and listening, actually, hearing from others. I believe it's going to look quite different, this, you know, this concept of the low touch or the no touch economy it brings many changes and i you know i encourage my management teams to understand what are the business opportunities that that world would bring i'd share that advice with with other executives number two is i believe innovation only works if you have the right structure and people and and so i believe from a structure point of view uh, you know, we've spoken about this concept of village and, you know, you can give it different names, but it's, it's a loosely organized organization where resources are allocated 
on a flexible basis and reallocate it quickly. And where, you know, diversity, there's many good reasons for having diversity in the organization. I can tell you that I believe that diversity is essential for innovation. You know, you bring people together with different vintage points, different competencies, different backgrounds, different nationalities, great things happen. You get just better ideas. Excellent. On that note, a huge thank you to Michael and to you, uh, Dilip. Thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. And I hope all of the listeners had an interesting time tuning into this conversation. Take care, everybody. Thank you, Oliver. It was a pleasure being on the show. Thank you. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey and Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.